great article in this week's World Magazine. World Magazine is like Newsweek, it's like Time, it's like U.S. News and World Report, but it, it's written from a biblical worldview. So it's still covering all the events you'd see out there in the world, but it's written from a biblical worldview. They have a print version, they have an online version. They have a gentleman who's, who's talking in this article. His name is Gunther Beckley. He's a German paleontologist. His expertise is in uh, fossilized uh, dragonflies. Somebody's got to be, all right? Uh, and so that's his deal, all right? So great, everybody's got their cup of tea, great. And so he was raised in all this. He's just another example who says, here's what we're taught, but when you look at the evidence, it just doesn't support it, all right? He's got this great comment in the middle of the article. He says this, the problem for neo-Darwinianism is that if this idea should fail, there is no alternative. If the only naturalistic explanation for complex information is the Darwinian process, and this process is shown to be unfeasible, then it's game over for naturalism. Huh? What he's saying is this, if there's just a natural world, and there is no supernatural, and this does not explain in a very reasonable and feasible way why everything is the way it is, Naturalism, Darwinian evolution, it's in big trouble, all right? That's why, especially in biology, the aggression is very high against intelligent design explanations. He goes on to say this, if you're getting into the sciences, you need to be very careful. I would also advise staying undercover in your career uh, until you are settled and established because the risk to ruin to your career is real as I and many others have encountered. If any of the youth in here are considering a, 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 a career in the sciences, please do that. But this gentleman is not the only person I've heard say that. I've heard Christians at Answers in Genesis, Answers in Genesis, outstanding ministry, the Creation Museum, Ark Encounter, their, their uh, uh, bi-monthly magazine, uh, Answers. They have so much. They have the world's largest creation science website. They have so many speakers, resources. Again, if you want more, I can give you more. They also encourage people. If you're going into the sciences, you just do not divulge that you're a Christian. It's not that you deny the faith, but you give the textbook answers, this is what is taught, this is what your theory is, you personally don't believe it, but this is what you believe, this is what the textbook said. Get your degree and get established, and then you can start showing things that do not fit the Darwinian explanation for the origin of life. It is amazing, in this day and age, you have to do that. But again, it's not Christianity versus science, it's, it's science versus Darwinian evolution, all right? Why are we talking about this? Why are we combining youth and adults together? Look on the left side of the screen. Talked about this last week. The stats on America continue to trend down as far as a percentage of Christians and up for those in the nuns. So just looking at Generation Z, those born between 1999 and 2015, Barna is polling those who are 13 to 17 year old. He found 59% of Generation Z is Christian. That's the lowest of any of the age groups that are out there. Millennials, Gen Xers, baby boomers, etc. You're at the lowest point in any generation. They have the highest percentage of nuns. When you combine those bottom three together, it's 35%. 
over one out of three Gen Zs you'd run into is a nun. They're either atheist, there is no God, agnostic, I don't know if there's a God, or I have no religious affiliation. Barna says, the trend is undeniable. It is sloping downward in America regarding belief in Christ as Savior and being a Christian, and it's trending up in terms of, well, I, I don't believe that God exists. I don't know if there's a God. That's why everybody in this room, your ministry is simply to ask questions. And I want to show you questions to ask people. James Emery White in his book, Meet Generation Z, he points this out. Generation Z is not even thinking about God. They're not even thinking about God. Your ministry could just be posing questions to get people to think. And now you have an opportunity to bring Scripture to the table and let God the Holy Spirit go to work. Again, you're not going to save anybody. You're not going to save anybody. The information on the sheet isn't going to save anybody. God the Holy Spirit is going to convict people of their sins. And God the Holy Spirit is going to bring people to faith. But you could be instrumental in getting people just to think besides everything that they've been exposed to in the textbooks, in the classrooms, on television, at the museums, online. Take a look on the right side of the screen. When Barna polls Gen Z, the atheists now, they have double the amount of, of atheists than any other generation, 13%. He found this, their three biggest hurdles to the faith are hypocrisy. I don't see the church living their faith, so why would I want to be a Christian? That's an indictment on us. We've got to walk the talk. I have to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. If you've got questions on that, we can talk about that another time. The suffering question, why is there evil? If there's a God, why doesn't he do something? That's a great question because everybody struggles with that. Just the book of Job in the Bible deals with that, as well as other Bible books. So that's a legitimate question too. Next week, we're going to talk about why is there suffering? Why is there evil? We'll talk about that. But the third question, science is refuted the Bible. I don't believe in God. Science is refuted the Bible. You've taught generations upon generations upon generations. The Bible's not true. There is no God. You're an evolved animal. The earth is billions of years old. You keep telling a lie loud enough, long enough, often enough, people believe it. So your ministry could be simply asking questions. Not quoting scripture right away, but just bringing questions to the table and let people think through it. You're not trying to humiliate anyone. You're not trying to put anybody in their place. You're just simply going, un momento, <laughs> wait a minute. Is this so? How do you know? What evidence do you have? All right. Here's the other thing you've got to understand. This is not science versus Christianity. It's science versus Darwinism. On the screen is an image of observational science. As I mentioned before, Francis Bacon invented the scientific method. Christians are not anti-science. You should not be anti-science. Why? Because observational science is when you observe things, you develop a hypothesis, you test your hypothesis, you look at your data, you come to a conclusion, you could replicate the, the experiment, someone else could replicate it. it. That's the scientific method. It's something that we grew up with and have learned and everyone should understand and believe. That's observational science. There's no question on that. Here's what the question is. Is Darwinianism, is Darwinian evolution observational science or is it scientific theory or what some people call historical science where you cannot observe you cannot replicate these things you cannot conduct an experiment but you simply tell a story 
And after a while, you've heard that story so much, and it's been so well produced in drawings, in models, in diagrams, you go, well, I guess that's the real deal. On the screen is a cartoon of an artist looking at bones. Now, the bones are observable, and you could measure them, you could weigh them, you could see what they're made out of, and there's the end of your observational science. You, you, you can't do much more than that. You can't look at the dinosaurs in action. You can't see what they really look like. Do they really have purple skin? Do they really have green skin? You, you, you don't, don't have that information. So you can't conduct an experiment. You can observe, but what you can do is tell a story. And you can draw a picture of a purple and a green one in a, in a death, life and death battle. And then you can put it in a, in a book, you can put it online, you can put it in a museum, and you go, see, that's what happened. And that's why there's scientists who go, wait a minute, wait a minute. Observational science is different than historical science. That's some of the, 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 the basics that you and I have got to know, all right? So let's take a look at our outline. What best explains our origins, right? Here's what you got to remember. We're only looking at one planet. We're looking at the same set of rocks, the same set of fossils, but you're coming at it from two dramatically different worldviews, and they each start with a different assumption. A biblical worldview starts with God existing and the Bible being the inspired and errant Word of God. We talked about that last week. In evolution, the assumption is there's no God. So on the whiteboard here, I put a slash through the triangle. I'm using the triangle shape for God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all right? The slash through God, the assumption is there is no God. There's just a natural world. There is no supernatural. And so now you've started with that assumption, and then you go from there, all right? If you and I don't understand that, why can we look at the same rocks, the same fossils, the same planet, and come up with two different explanations? You have a starting point that's different. Either God is or God ain't. Either God is or God ain't. They're going, God ain't. And a question you'll have to ask people is, how do you know that? How do you know? How do you know there's no God? Because that's a powerful assumption to begin with. There is no God. Wow. Okay, so you've been everywhere. You know everything. Oof. So what's evolutionary theory? Without God, without design, without purpose, the universe comes to an existence all by itself, and life gets better and better. Now, it happens about 14 billion years ago. If you look in the textbooks, they'll talk about 14 billion years ago. This number continues to grow. And they will continue to add time to this because there's just not enough time to make this all work. So time becomes a magic formula. No textbooks in the 1800s were talking like this. In the 1800s, you had textbooks that were talking about God, they were talking about design, they were talking about order. Eventually, in the 1800s, you start getting the idea that that it's hundreds of thousands, millions of years, and eventually now in the 20th and 21st century, billions of years. So time just keeps being added on, all right? And so in evolutionary theory of the origin of the universe, all the matter of the universe is compressed to a point, and then 14 billion years ago, it exploded in the Big Bang. All that material was hot gases spread out through the known universe, and eventually cools down and forms sun, moon, stars, and green clovers. And so we've heard about this before, have you? The universe is magically delicious. So this takes place 14 billion years ago, all the way to 4 billion years ago. That's when the Earth forms. Now we'll get to the rest of the timeline later, all right? So the assumption, no God, 
the beginning ball of matter. The question you can ask people in person, online. You're not trying to embarrass anybody. You're just a critically thinking human being who goes, okay, there's a ball of matter and exploded 14 billion years ago. Where did that come from? Where'd the ball of matter come from? If you listen to people who deal with this question, they go, well, one theory is, now remember, this is not observational science. No one was there 14 billion years ago. Nobody's got a time machine. They don't have a DeLorean that goes 88 miles an hour. That they, how many of you understood the cultural reference? Okay, a couple of you did, all right? It was a back to the future reference, right? So nobody has a DeLorean that goes 88 miles an hour. They can go back in time and go to the Big Bang because if they saw that ball of matter explode, the question would be, where'd that ball of matter come from? So there's some who'll teach this. It came from a black hole. The question you should ask is, where'd the black hole come from? Another question, or another answer will be this. Well, it came from a mother universe. The question you should ask is, where did the mother universe come from? From grandma universe. <laughs> Finally, some will go, well, it came from nothing. Now, you should remember some basic science. First law of thermodynamics. Who knows first law of thermodynamics? Energy can't be created or destroyed. So that's why, starting assumption, no God, all that there is is matter. Carl Sagan, the cosmos is all that there is, was, or ever will be. So if you remember Carl Sagan's book, Cosmos, got it, read it. I can loan it to you if you're interested. Saw his PBS series years ago, Cosmos. Then Cosmos was just redone recently. Starting assumption, there's no God, but the cosmos, the universe, is all that there is, was, or ever will be. Now, that's an assumption. That's not observational science. No one can observe that. No one can know that for certain. And so you can't get something from nothing, so that can't be an option. It's got to be maybe the black hole, maybe the mother universe, but where did that come from? We don't know. Help people understand. So you start with faith, too. This is the argument you'll get into. Some people go, well, you live by faith and I live by science. Well, you don't live by observational science. You live with an assumption or a leap of faith that there was a ball of matter 14 billion years ago and it went, okay? Sound effects are great, aren't they? You're going to be doing that all tonight, okay? The kids are going to be doing that tonight. So besides the, where did it come from? Now you've got an explosion that gives rise to an orderly universe. That violates the second law of thermodynamics, a part of it called entropy. Things tw tend towards decay. You can have something that's in order and it will break down. It will uh, move towards entropy, all right? Uh, when, when you look at things live and die, they break down and decay, all right? You see that all over the place, all right? And so there's different aspects of this concept of entropy but you do not see explosions giving rise to hot gas and then things forming orderly, all right? I've heard some creationists say it this way. So what you're asking us to believe is all this random collection of molecules form together a universe that works with clockwork precision. So we can know exactly when the sun's going to come up tomorrow. And no one should run to the window tomorrow and go, It came up! It's true. 
Because you, you know, you can look in the paper, you can look online, they'll tell you on television, here's when the sun's going to come up. And it comes up with clockwork perfection. You can see this order. How could that happen from a random explosion? So some creationists will say it like this. So what you're saying is, it's like having a tornado rip through a junkyard and what spit out is a 747 that you could jump in and fly away. Wait a minute, we don't see that. What we do see is a tornado whip, rip through a 747 and rip it asunder, so now it doesn't work. It goes from an orderly plane to a disorderly plane, but you do not see or a disorder giving rise to order, all right? If you have any questions on that, look at your kid's bedroom. <laughs> Oof. I love John Polkinghorne's quote from Newsweek. He was a scientist at Cambridge University, and he said this. Take a look at the quote. It turns out that if the constants of nature, unchanging numbers like the strength of gravity, the charge of an electron, the mass of a proton were the tiniest bit different, then atoms would not hold together, stars would not burn, and life would never have made an appearance. He goes on to say, when you realize that the laws of nature must be incredibly finely tuned to produce the universe we see, that conspires to plant the idea that the universe didn't just happen, but there must be a purpose behind it. He's not reading Genesis. He simply goes, you know, when I look at these things, the strength of gravity, the charge of an electron, the mass of a proton, you can't tweak that a little. If you do, it doesn't work. You have no life. You do not have an orderly universe that we can inhabit. It's like someone set the dials and made it just right. Huh. Now, the Christian can understand that. The intelligent design argument does not read Genesis 1. Please understand that. Well, creation science and intelligent design are the same thing. No, they're not. The intelligent design people, like this gentleman I mentioned before, from Germany, Gunther, yeah, uh, Gunther, he, he says it like this, I'm an intelligent design proponent. I don't start with Scripture. I just look at the order and realize some intelligence has put this together. Now, maybe it's aliens. Or maybe it's gods. Or maybe it's one God. I don't know. All I'm doing is looking at everything that's so orderly. So assumption, no God. Beginning, where to come from? Order, we're working on our A-bomb, all right? We're working on our A-bomb. Where, how, how'd the order get there, all right? So now, let's go down the line on our drawing. Now, after four billion years, the planet is there, and then three billion years later, life evolves from lifeless matter. Three billion years ago, life evolves from lifeless matter. It's spontaneous generation arising. Now, when people believe that, they're believing against observational science. Again, this is historical science, but observational science goes, uh-uh-uh. Why? It's called the law of biogenesis. You must have something alive to get something that's living. You've got to start with something that's alive before you're going to have something that's living. This table will not give rise to baby, baby tables, okay? It doesn't work that way. But you could have a living tree, and the tree could drop its seeds, and then the, the, the seeds could grow, and it could be an oak tree or a maple tree or whatever, all right? Just so you know, there are some scientists, I am not making this up, they know that you cannot have spontaneous generation, life from lifeless matter. So they say life came here from alien life. One, maybe, spore or cell of alien life came here maybe on the back of a meteor 
or was deposited here by intelligent life. And then the question you'd ask is, where'd, the, where'd that come from? Where'd those aliens come from? It's called directed panspermia. Directed panspermia. If you'd like to know more, I can tell you more. But bottom line is, that is not observational science. I like Star Trek as much as the next guy, right? That's not observational science, all right? I love this quote, though, from Harvard's Dr. George Wald. Check it out. At least he's honest enough to admit what's driving him. But I can't accept that philosophy, creation, because I don't want to believe in God. Therefore, I chose to believe in that which is scientifically impossible, spontaneous generation leading to evolution. At least he's honest. I heard one creationist say it like this. Do you understand that the atheist and the thief are both running? They're both running from someone in authority. The atheist is running from God, who's in authority. The thief is running from the authority of the police. They're both running. I, I, I don't want to have to face that person. All you're going to do is ask questions and get people to think critically. Because you tell a lie loud enough, long enough, often enough, people believe it. Oh, that's true. You're an evolved animal. The earth's billions of years old. There is no God. Oh, okay. Textbook said so. Online said so. Teacher said so. And please understand, there are some teachers who teach this, and they've never heard the other side. They've not heard this. They know the book, what the book says. They know what they were taught. And there's some people that are afraid of getting in trouble. I don't want to lose my job. I'm just going to teach what the textbook says. But you're called to be a light. You're called to speak the truth in love, right? Now, this happens three billion years ago and life evolves. And then eventually, I didn't draw it all because I ran out of whiteboard. But eventually humans come here and here we are, all right, at the end of the, the timeline there. But you could also look at the complexity or order that has to take place for life to exist. On the left side of the screen is a mousetrap. Michael Bay, in his book, Darwin's Black Box, says it like this. Do you understand that our organisms, our organs, our cells are irreducibly complex? Huh? Dr. Bay, what do you, what do you, what do you mean they're irreducibly complex? He goes, think of a mousetrap. A mousetrap is irreducibly complex. You can't reduce it anymore. It's got to have this to work. So on the screen, that's how you catch a mouse. You can't catch a mouse with a block of wood. You can't catch a mouse with a block of wood and then add a piece of cheese. You can't catch a mouse if you start with a block of wood, add a piece of cheese, and then add a spring. You can't just add little by little by little, which is what evolution tells you. You've got to have it all there to begin with, and it has to work. It's irreducibly complex. Now take a look at the eyeball up there. You can't just start with an optic nerve. And then later, there was an optic nerve, and the next organism had a pupil. And then the next organism down the road had an optic nerve and a pupil and an iris and so on and so on and so on. It's all those components have got to be there and they've got to work. When you think about male and female, you have to have both anatomies and both sexual organs need to work. And you can't, well, it kind of works. Well, you're, then you're not going to have life that continues. You've got to have a male and a female, and they both have to have sexual reproductive organs that work immediately. And that's why they're scientists. They're not reading Scripture. They go, I don't know about this. And there are more and more scientists who are saying, we don't believe in Darwinian evolution. 
But what's the option? Some go intelligent design. There's something out there that's got really good smarts. There's others who go, well, maybe they're gods. Maybe they're aliens. Maybe there's God like you read about in the Bible. I love this quote from Darwin. To suppose that the eye with its inimitable uh, contrivances for adjusting the focus to different distances, for admitting different amounts of light, and for the correction of spherical chromatic aberration could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. What? Chuck, what are you saying? Well, Chuck Darwin is saying this. He goes, look, you and I can see far and near. We can see in highlight and low light. We can see in color and black and white. He goes, to, to say that all this came about by natural selection, just your eye, he goes, that is absurd. Yeah. And uh, I'm still going to go with it, though. And that's why this article was so fascinating. And again, God's timing always blows me away. This is this week's article, this week's edition. And this guy is going, you got to understand, the stakes are high. If this is wrong, there's no other option out there. The scientific realm goes, ah, ah, ah. And the church is standing there going, could we have the floor for a minute? <laughs> but when this is taught, mutation is the key to man's evolution. All right? Now, Darwin never talked about evolution. That's why you'll hear about neo-Darwinian evolution. Neo is new. And so neo-Darwinian evolution talks about mutation. Darwin never talked about it. He didn't know that 150 years ago. But we know about mutations, all right? And in Neo-Darwinian evolution, it talks about mutation, and if you take a look on the screen, start at the bottom of that picture, there's organisms, and they mutate into different organisms. They're more advanced and more complex, and at the top there, there's, there's uh, humans and, and saber-toothed tigers and, and all that kind of stuff, right? So organisms are changing into different organisms. It's called macroevolution. Macro, large-scale evolution so from one organism to another. Now, here's the problem. We have never observed this. This is not observational science. We have never observed this. But, and, I'm, and I'm giving you examples right out of textbooks. Look on the screen. You'll see artist drawings. You'll see artist rendering. You'll see computer-generated images. You'll see models in museums. I'll show you those later. And that's what you've got to help people understand. That's a drawing, that's a sculpture, that's a model, that's a computer-generated image. Could we see this with observational science and the scientific method? And the answer is no. We've not seen one type of organism change into another, all right? How about this one? Michigan State. Professor Richard Lenski wanted to follow evolution in real time in his experiment. Lenski grew bacteria in his lab until he had millions, or roughly the equivalent of a million years in the history of humans. His conclusion, nothing fundamentally new has been produced. In the end, the bacteria are still bacteria. I love it when evolutionists are honest and they go, this is what I'm doing, observational science. Here's what Darwinian evolution says. It, it doesn't match up. Now again, they're rocking the boat and they risk their reputation, you tell what the establishment wants to hear, no, this is what's out there, right? It's, it's not holding up, right? Mutations, though, that's the key, all right? Does anyone like X-Men? Anyone like X-Men? All right, very cool. Yeah, I do too, all right? I like Nightcrawler the best, all right? How, how cool would it be to teleport, okay? But when you want, read Marvel Comics, the X-Men, watch the very first film, it says mutation. It is the key to man's evolution. That's the first line Professor X has in the film. So we've, we're bombarded with this stuff everywhere. 
Mutation, it's the key to man's evolution. No, it's not. In the comic book, the X-Men are homo superior. They're not homo sapiens, they're homo superior. They're better than us. Here's the reality behind mutation. Mutations are a loss of genetic information. They're not good. They're almost always harmful. Take a look at the screen. There's two fruit fly. One has two wings, one has four wings. The four-winged fruit fly is a mutant. You'd think it'd be better, right? Four wings, flapping, that's probably zipping around faster than anything. If you would watch a mutant fruit fly that has four wings, what you'd find is that extra set of wings is dead. They do not flap. It actually weighs the fly down, so it really doesn't fly. It kind of hops. So it'd be a fruit hop. Good. Somebody's still awake. All right. It's kind of dark in here, I know. And out in the wild, if you weren't doing this experiment in the lab, out in the wild, a predator could pick that off easily because it can't fly away. So it wouldn't be able to pass on that mutation real well. But there's a perfect example. Well, we see mutations all the time. Yeah, and it's a loss of genetic information, all right? Dr. Lee Spetner says it like this. Not even one mutation has been observed that adds a little information to the genome. It's a loss of information. But what you and I are told in X-Men is mutation is the key to man's evolution. And like a sponge, we go, well, Patrick Stewart said it. He's Professor X. Stan Lee came up with the X-Men, and Stan Lee wouldn't lie to me. He drew spy he made, made Spider-Man after all. Here's the other thing that you're going to see. You're going to see an apples and oranges comparison to support mutations and macroevolution, microevolution will be shown. Micro, small, like microscope, right? Microevolution is demonstrable, observable, scientific. You should have no problem with it. Why? Because you see this all over the place. On the screen to the right are uh, dog kinds, wolf, fox, coyote, poodle, but they're all dog kinds. That's microevolution, small changes within a species, within a kind, and so you can have different types of dogs, but they're still dogs. They do not change into elephants. They do not change into reptiles, a different type of organism, a different kind altogether. So on the left is macro, unobservable, unscientific. What is observable and scientific is microevolution. Well, we see microevolution. We can crossbed roses and get different types of roses. Yeah, but they're still roses. They don't become palm trees, all right? So you can't get something totally different. It always stays within that kind, and that's what you and I have to understand. But you and I see this stuff in the textbooks, on television, online, in the lectures. So transitional fossils will be brought forward. Transitional fossils. So here's an artist drawing from a textbook examples of one thing changing into another because we all know that the organisms three billion years ago were a simple one-celled and then they morphed into fish, fish into reptiles, reptiles into birds. So remember when you're eating turkey or chicken, you're actually eating dinosaur. And I heard an evolutionist say this and I go, wow. Really? So when you have chicken, you're eating dinosaur. Well, starting assumption, there's no God. This is what happened. Simple-celled, fish, fish into reptiles, reptiles into birds. 
So that's the truth. There's no questions here, right? Well, we see it in our textbooks. Examples of one thing morphing into another, transitional fossils. The real question to ask is, where are they? I don't want to see another drawing. I don't want to see another computer-generated image, a sculpture. I want to see the transitional fossils themselves. I love this quote from Dr. Colin Patterson. Curator and paleontologist of London's Museum of Natural History, Colin Patterson did not know of any evidence, fossil or living, that provides direct illustration of evolutionary transitions. I'll lay it on the line, he says. There's not one such fossil for which one can make a watertight argument. He's an evolutionist. He runs muse the Museum of Natural History in London. He has seven million fossils at his disposal in his museum alone. When he wrote his book on evolution, he was asked by people, how come you don't have any photos of fossils that show direct transition from one type of organism into another? And this was his reply. If I knew of any, I would have put them in my book. There's not one living fossil. There's not one fossil fossil that we could use. Sorry. He's telling the truth. So you and I got to know the truth, and then you got to bring this stuff out there, right? Now, again, you see this stuff all over the place, whether it's the Geico commercials, so simple a caveman could do it, all right? If you remember the Geico commercials, right? So you see this stuff, you're bombarded with it everywhere, and again, moving left to right on the screen, <laughs> and eventually on the right, high, all right? And so that's the way it goes, all right? Roger Oakland, a, a creationist, said it like this. He goes, you know, if you, if you tell people that they evolved from worms, a worm can become a man, and he goes, and it can happen just like that. A worm becomes a man, bam, just like that. He goes, people just laugh them right out of the building. But if you'd say this, a worm can become a man over billions of years, everyone goes, yes. He goes, and that's the key to evolution. It's time. Time becomes the magic formula. Add a little time, add a lot of time. And then what's impossible, well, I guess it could happen. That's not observational science. We can't watch that occur. No one's ever seen this. That's not observational science. That's historical science, right? Now, here's the problem with the missing links, which are transitional fossils from ape-like creatures to humans, right? Where are they? These missing links are still missing. Dr. Pillbeam found the original jaw fragment and teeth of Ramapithecus. So on the right side of the screen is the jaw fragment and teeth that Dr. Pillbeam found. Later, Dr. Pillbeam said, we found much more of these skeletons, much more intact. Dr. Pillbeam's conclusion was, these are an extinct orangutan. They are not a human, a missing link. But you will still see in some information in textbooks or, or speeches and the like, they'll talk about Ramapithecus. When evolutionists disagree with evolutionists, just sit back and listen. You don't have to do anything. You just go, this gentleman has a question over here. I believe what we're doing is looking at this one set of fossils going, that's not becoming human. It's just a different type of orangutan. A similar thing happened with Eugene Dubois and Homo erectus or Java man. Eugene Dubois was the original person to find a gibbon skull, a type of an ape, and a human leg bone. And he brought the human leg bone as a femur bone, right? Your thigh bone. He brought the femur bone and the gibbon skull together and he goes, hey, check it out. Here's our missing ancestor, the missing link. Later, Dubois confessed at that dig site, 
I found human skeletal remains. Well, Dr. Dubois, doesn't that femur bone belong with the humans then? And that gibbon skull is its own kind of thing? But you'll still see in National Geographic and other publications, other information, Homo erectus, Java man, that's one of our ancestors. This is probably the most famous of all the missing links, Lucy. Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about, Lucy, right? Very good. We're not talking about peanuts, right? Lucy Van Pelt. We're talking about Lucy that Dr. Donald Johansson found. On the far right is the original find of Lucy, about four feet tall, not even half the skeletal remains. What was fascinating about the Lucy find was Johansson finds it, he added a knee joint that was found a mile away, 200 feet deeper, at a different dig site. Why would he bring the knee joint in and present that to National Geographic and say, check it out, check it out? The argument was, look at the knee, look at the pelvis, it shows that this thing walked upright. It's got to be coming human. It's got to be on the transition towards human. Well, when you get other scientists who look at the knee joint, who look at the pelvis, they go, I don't know if it's really showing that it walked upright. But even if it did, that doesn't prove anything. For example, the pygmy chimp today walks around a lot of times upright, not on all fours knuckle walking. That doesn't mean it's becoming human. It just, it'll just walk around on two legs. So that's why you've got other evolutionists who go, wait a minute. Just because the hip joint and knee looks like it may uh, move towards upright posture or walking on two legs, that doesn't mean it's becoming human. But notice now move from far left to, to the next one, or excuse me, far right just to the next one second from the right. Notice how they have Lucy in this display. She's standing exactly straight erect. And then they show her hands and feet. Now here's something that's subtle. The Ramapithecus, or excuse me, the Australopithecus find did not have hands and feet. But the artists will make hands and feet. A lot of times they'll make them very human-like. And all you got to do is go online and look at chimpanzees or gorilla or orangutan hands and feet, and then look at a human hand. They're dramatically different. But what you'll see in the displays is they'll make the hands look very human. And that's not by accident. They're trying to show you. See, it's becoming human. Look, it's standing straight up. And you got other evolutionists who go, well, it's probably a knuckle walker. And there's others who go, it's, it's probably a type of a chimpanzee. Now go to the far left. You can see a photo of a chimpanzee. Look at the eyes. Now go to the second from the left. Here's a Lucy exhibit up close. Look at her eyes. Notice how human they are. That's another very subtle way you'll see in demonstrations or exhibits. I want to show you that this thing's becoming human. So the model maker will make it look like it has human eyes. Here's an example from pop culture. If you've seen any of the new Planet of the Ape films, all right? Now, everybody knows the originals are best, especially with Charlton Heston, all right? Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. Charlton Heston, yes, all right? You blew it all to bits! Greatest ending to a movie ever. We'll talk about that later. Um, watch the new Planet of the Ape films, and you'll see that Caesar, I believe that's his, his name, Caesar's eyes are very human. So they're showing that this chimpanzee had intelligence. 
So now what you see in the movies is, is fascinating and it's fun and you can close it out and then go to bed and okay. But when you go to the museums, they're showing that to go, see, this is one of your ancestors. Look at how human Lucy is. She's just a little hairier than you. Neanderthal man was found in the Neanderthal Valley of Germany. Many of these people, they, boy, they got a, a, a funny forehead, all right, protruding eye, eyebrow ridge, orbital ridge there. Uh, and, and their posture was poor. Uh, the, the, it looked like they, they, they were hunched over, all right? Why? Scientists from Johns Hopkins went and x-rayed the bones of the Neanderthals, all right, from the Neanderthal Valley in Germany, all right? Why were they hunched over? It's not that they were evolving, it's they had arthritis. They had a vitamin D deficiency called rickets. That's why their posture was poor. They are technically homo sapiens. And so when you see in magazines like National Geographic or go to the textbooks and see about, look, Neanderthal man, he's a homo sapien. Well, why did he look that way? Well, for some, their posture was due to disease. And just because their, their, their eyebrow ridge was more protruded and like, look, for example, at pygmies, look at different people groups on the planet, they won't look like quote-unquote normal homo sapiens. They're still homo sapiens, right? So that's what you and I have to understand, right? I love this little slide from Answers in Genesis. Is it Planet of the Apes? No, it's Planet of the Humans who believe they're related to apes, right? And so after a while you hear this and you just buy into it because that's all you've known, that's all you've heard. Dr. Richard Leakey, the leading anthropologist for years on the planet before he died, he said it like this, when asked to draw man's family tree, Dr. Leakey said it like this, I'll draw a question mark. The evidence is too scanty. He goes, I don't think we'll ever find it. Now think about that. Here's an evolutionist. He goes, draw our family tree. Because remember, the assumption is there's no God, and the question is not, did we evolve from apes? The question is, from which ape did we evolve? So two dramatically different things. Did we evolve from apes? They're not asking that question. They're going, from which one did we evolve? Did we come from orangutans, chimpanzees, or gorillas? Dr. Leakey, what do you think? He goes, I'll draw a question mark. You got to know all the info before I come to a conclusion. Before we get into creation, just take a look at these quotes. Richard Dawkins, evolutionary biologist, outspoken atheist. Biology is a study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. Hopefully you would have some questions for Dr. Dawkins. Complicated things that have the appearance of being designed for a purpose. Huh. But it's not. It's just a random collection of molecules. Yep, that's it. Huh. Francis Crick, co-discoverer of DNA. Biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they, that what they see is not designed, but rather evolved. <laughs> this is not designed. I know it's complicated. I know it's put together. Uh, but boy, it, 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 it's, it's just evolved. Darwin said it like this, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not have possibly been found by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. Chuck, what'd you say about the eyeball? Hmm. How about this one from Francis Crick again? The origin of life appears at the moment to be about a miracle. So many other conditions would have had been satisfied to get it going. I love that quote. What's the key word there? Miracle. That man is borrowing from a Christian worldview. He's using Christian vocabulary to explain life. 
Isn't that amazing? Because what do you see? You see complexity. You see life. How could that be? Man, it's, it's, it's like a miracle. It's called God, okay? It's called God, all right? And that's why the intelligent design people don't start with Genesis. They just look at everything and they go, how could this be? Here's the best analogy you can use for people. Get their smartphone out. Help them understand. Look at your smartphone. It's not just matter. There's also information in there. That's what's in our cells. Darwin didn't know this. There's information in your cells. Where did that information come from? It had to be put in there by an intelligent designer. That's why the intelligent design movement goes, we don't know if it's God, we don't know if it's aliens, we don't know if it's some other super being, but something with intelligence has put this information in here, put everything in order. It can't be random. It's just off the charts, all right? And so that's why you, you and I got to take a break now. Stand up at 620. We're going to fly through the creation thing. Stand up, take a break, stretch. Take a two-minute break, stretch. We'll talk about answers to have for questions people are going to give you. That's it, stretch. We're going to do questions later. We're going to do questions later, okay? I'm going to talk about it, yeah. I'm telling you. I know. He, he was not working with me. That marker was not working with me. All right. We are back. We're taking a look, turning the corner at explaining why we believe what we do. R.C. Sproul, Christian apologist, says like this. If you can explain why the Bible is the inspired inerrant word of God and talk about how you can argue for God's existence, that's 90% of defending the faith. Think about that. If you can explain why the Bible's reliable and the existence of God, that's 90% of doing apologetics, all right? So we just want to equip you with that because you're going to interact, interact with people and they got legitimate questions, everybody does. How do you know there's a God, right? Well, you can do arguments for God's existence and now here's your, your vocabulary words for today. It's not... Remember from two weeks ago, homologumina, antilegumina? No, here's vocabulary for this week. Cosmology, teleology, and the moral order argument, all right? The cosmological argument for God's existence goes like this. Look, everything's got a beginning. Who began it? The teleological or, uh, argument for God's existence is every design's got a designer. Who designed everything? And the moral order argument goes, every law has got a lawgiver. Who, who is the lawgiver, all right? So a natural knowledge of God, if you just look at how complex things are, and also, going over here now, when you, ooh, my laser pointer just went out. Life from lifeless matter, scientifically impossible. But life began to think. Now here's another problem that evolutionists have. Where did thought come from if all that there is is matter? You can cut into my skull and touch my brain, but you cannot touch my thoughts. Thoughts are immaterial. They are not comprised of atoms and molecules. There is logic. 
There's mathematics. There are things that you cannot touch, but there are things beyond the natural material world. A, a believer can explain that because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God, the divine mind, the Greeks even thought, well, there's something out there. They called him the divine mind, right? There's something out there with super intelligence. Where did thought come from? And so this argument of a moral order is, look, how did matter start to think and then develop a moral code? That's okay. You shouldn't do that. How did matter do that? So when you're, oh, come on now. Battery's dying. Don't panic. Sometimes if you take it out and pop it back in, it works. Yeah, boy. Romans chapter 1. Paul says it like this, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His internal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, been understood from what has been made, so men are without excuse. He says nobody should have an excuse going, Oh, I didn't know there was a God. Look around. This is an accident? The classic by William Paley was the watch. You're walking in the forest, you find a watch. Wow, what's this doing here? Someone must have dropped it. It works, it has function. Someone must have dropped this. All right? I don't know who that is, but someone dropped this. That's the idea behind all the order and everything works with clockwork precision. Well, someone must have made this. We just don't know who it is. So an argument from nature that God exists is, are these things we've talked about. The moral order argument ties into Romans 2. Indeed, when Gentiles who don't have the law do by nature things required by the law, they're a law for themselves, even though they don't have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witnesses, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. Huh? In context, Paul's going, Joe Gentile understands there's certain things you don't do. You don't steal, you don't kill. They don't have Exodus 20. Joe Gentile's not curling up with the Bible, but they know there's instinctively things you shouldn't do. Why? The law is written on their hearts. Where is that moral order coming from? The Bible can explain that. You were made in God's image. We fell into sin. And that's why across the planet, there's a commonality in a moral code. Moral foundations theory says it like this. Sociologists look at cultures. They go, there are five morals that are common in all cultures. Why is that? The, the Christians go, ooh, call on me, call on me. <laughs> Romans 2. <laughs> the evolutionist goes, well, it matter started to think and then matter came up with a moral code what in the beginning matter no in the beginning god all right the revealed knowledge of god is important you eventually have got to get people to the bible why because that's going to give them more specifics you can know there's something out there the intelligent design proponents they're going well there's something out there we don't know if it's aliens or gods or a god or a super being you got to give them to scripture to find out well he's triune he's three in one he sent his son. We're saved by grace through faith, and it's not by works. So you've got to get him into the Bible so they can know the revealed knowledge of God. Now, real quickly, when you read the Genesis text, there's questions that come up, so let me give you these. Let me give you answers to these, all right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, all right? Notice, starts with the assumption God is. Psalm 90, verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The Hebrew word for God is Elohim. It's just a general term for God, Elohim. The analogy would be this, presenter. I went to a Bible study Sunday night. The presenter was talking about life's big questions. This is the second session I went to that the presenter was doing. Last week, the presenter, or two weeks ago, the presenter talked about reliability of the Bible. So it's just a general term, okay? 
What did Elohim do? In Hebrew, he bara. The verb is only used by God. It's only attributed in, in, in circumstances with God because it's creating out of nothing. No one else can do this. So when you read the Hebrew on Noah building the ark, it doesn't use the verb bara. He didn't make that ark out of nothing. He used gopher wood. And what did God do? He made the heavens and the earth. He is not part of the creation. We're not pantheists. We're not saying that God is part of the creation. He is transcendent from it. He's different from it. He made light on the first day. The Hebrew word is light. It is not the sun. We'll explain that in a minute. Then what does he create? He creates an atmosphere. He separates water from water below and water above with sky or atmosphere. All right? Now we can talk about the ramifications of this and the evidence for a planet that was warmer, there was more, uh, uh, it was a better environment uh, in the fossil record. We can talk about that later. Day three, he makes the land with the plants that can produce after their kind. In other words, the apple tree can drop the apple, the seeds inside the apple can now spring up and a new apple tree will grow. It's all ready to go, all right? Day four is when the sun, moon, and stars are made. What's fascinating is this. Why would God do it that way? All right, what is the light? Nobody knows what the light is. The Hebrew word is just light. You just leave it at that. The sun, moon, and stars aren't made until day four. Go over to the timeline, all right? Why is this important? Life is here on day three. Life is by God, not the sun. The sun doesn't come until the next day, day four, all right? It's very clear in the text in Genesis. What is the sun, moon, and stars for? Well, one, to give you lights, you can see. Two, to mark time to tell days and seasons and years. You're not going to worship it, though. But you'll notice in cultures, when they're polytheistic, they got many gods, they'll have a sun god and a moon god. Oh, great sun god. Oh, great moon god. What's the Egyptian sun god's name? Everybody knows that, or most people know it. Ra, right? Oh, it's familiar. We've been exposed to that. Ra does not give life. The sun does not give life. Life is already there. Day five, fish and birds. Day six, Aminals and man, all right? Yes, I said aminals. You're going, wait, did he say aminals? Yes, he said aminals, okay. Now, get ready for these questions. Who is God talking to in Genesis 1 when he says, let us make man in our image? God is talking to himself. It's like a holy huddle, all right? Let's make man in our image. Ready, break, all right? It, let us make man in our, our image. And God said, he's not talking to angels. Angels are not mentioned at all. God is just talking to himself. So you can start seeing the Trinity right there. We're made in the image of God. Is God bald? No. Does God have arms and legs? No. All right. We're not in a physical image of God. John 4, 24, God is spirit, Jesus says. So the idea is we were, Adam and Eve, righteous and holy, perfect. Ephesians 4, Paul says when you're born again, when you become a Christian, you have this new nature that's righteous, made in the image of your creator. So you're holy and perfect, right? The, the spiritually born again. God tells Adam and Eve to rule over the earth, subdue it, all right? Not ruin it and destroy it, but you can plant things, you can build things, all right? They were vegetarians. He gave them every green plant for food. Meat is provided for food after the flood, Genesis 9, check it out. And at the end, Every day God said, it's good, it's good, it's good. And at the day six, when he's done, he goes, this is very good. It's very good, right? On day seven, get ready for this one. Your God is not omnipotent. He got tired and he had a rest. No, he's not tuckered out. 
He just stopped working. That's what the Hebrew word means. He just stopped working, right? And that's the model for our seven-day week. Huh, isn't that interesting? It's also the reason you read in Exodus 20 and Exodus 31. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. For in six days God created the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested. But here's the big question you've got to be ready for. Are the days in Genesis literal days, or are they millions and millions of years? That's a great question. Well, let's just do it like this. George Washington was our first president. George Washington was our first president. What's the subject in that sentence? George Washington. The verb was. Is that past, present, or future tense? Past. How do you know the speaker is an American from that sentence? George Washington was our first president. Our. So what you do is you listen to what is said or written, and then you look at the vocabulary, you look at the context, and you can figure out what it says. That's the same way with the Genesis text. The Genesis text is written in narrative form. It's not written in poetic or symbolic language. And if you can read and understand vocabulary and understand context, it's, meant, it's meaning just what it says, right? So here's our Hebrew lesson for the day. The Hebrew word for day is yam. It means a 24-hour period. You'll see the context. And there was evening and morning, the first yam. It's not evenings, plural, and mornings, plural. It's, and there was evening and morning, the first yam. In Hebrew, yam is always a 24-hour period when you had to have an adjective in front of it, like first, second, third. And in Hebrew, yam is always a 24-hour period when you have the context evening and morning associated with it. So go back and read the text. It starts at Genesis 1, verse 5. And there was evening and morning, the first yam, and then later. And there was evening and morning, the second yam. And then there was evening and morning, the third yam. So what is the exegetical scholar doing? Exegesis means to draw out the meaning. It's just what we do with George Washington, who was our first president. You look at the language, you look at the context, and you can figure this out. It's not rocket science. It's not difficult. Eisegesis is when you read into the text something that's not there. Eisegesis is when you read into the text something that's not there. Well, the text says it's six days, but that can't be because we know that the universe is billions of years old. And what we're doing is we're taking man's fallible ideas and putting them into God's infallible word and going, that's better. That makes more sense. No, let God speak. Here's another thing to consider. The only time Yom is questioned is in Genesis 1. Yom occurs over 2,300 times in the Old Testament. The only time people go, I don't think we should take that literally. It's in Genesis. So, for example, when you get to Joshua, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, right? He marches around Jericho uh, seven yom, seven days. Nobody goes to that Genesis, or Joshua text and goes, I wonder if he marched around for millions and millions of years. Nobody says that. Or you read Jonah. Jonah's, uh, Jonah's in the belly of the fish. It's not a whale, it's a fish. Belly of the fish for three yom. Nobody goes, well, I wonder if he was in there for millions and millions of years. Nobody does that. The Genesis text is the only text where they don't take it from its narrative position, which they should, because they're starting with this, and they're trying to jam it in, and it doesn't work, all right? That's why I love this quote from Dr. James Barr. He's at Oxford University. He's, you know he's, not, he's no dumb bunny. He says it like this, 
probably, so far as I know, there's no professor of Hebrew or Old Testament at any world-class university who doesn't believe that the writer or writers of Genesis 1 to 11 intended to convey to their readers the ideas that creation took place in a series of six days, which are the same uh, as the days of 24 hours we now experience. The figures contained in the Genesis genealogy is provided by simple addition of chronology from the beginning of the world up to latter stages in the biblical story. Noah's flood was understood to be worldwide and extinguished all human and animal life, except for those in the ark. What? Dr. James Bard Oxford, he goes, I don't know any Old Testament scholar, any Hebrew scholar who doesn't get it. When you read Genesis 1 through 11, was there a global flood where everyone died except for eight people? Yes. Did those people live hundreds of years, like in Genesis 5 and Genesis 11? Yes. Are the days in Genesis literal days? Yes, because that's what the Hebrew says. It's a narrative, right? Final thing to understand. When people go, I read Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, and then I read Genesis 2, 4 to 25. Are there two creation accounts? No. There's one creation. What you've got in Genesis 2, 4 to 25 is details on day 6 at the end of our drawing. Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3 is all seven days, six of creation, one of rest. Genesis 2, 4 to 25 goes back to day 6. Why? It's kind of important. Where did we come from, all right? Why is God's name different? Why is it not Elohim? Now it's, and we heard about this in church this morning. I thought, God, you are so cool. You're putting us all together. We just heard about this in church this morning. Yahweh. It means I am. It's the covenant name for God. It's much more personal. It'd be saying this. I went to a Bible study two weeks ago and today, and the presenter was talking about defending the faith. On the second evening, Brad talked about, and now you're talking about the same thing, but you're being very specific. And now it's not just a general term, Elohim. Now it's Yahweh, the God who is the great I Am, who said to Charlton Heston, my name is I Am who I Am. Okay, no one is awake now, all right? God did not speak to Charlton Heston. He spoke to Moses, Exodus 3.14. Hang in there. It's almost over, all right? Then, you're reading that Genesis text. Be ready for this. They'll say, well, it says in Genesis 2, 4 and following that no shrub of the field had appeared yet. Oh, but you said in Genesis 1, the plants were here and man was made on day 6. That's a contradiction. It's not a contradiction. All it's saying is nothing had sprouted from the ground yet. Three days later when man, man was made, three days after the plants were here, nothing had sprouted from seeds. No one had planted anything because man wasn't around. That's all it's saying. And then God made a garden in Eden. Now where is it? Nobody knows. When you read the text, a, a river flows out of it, and then four rivers come from that. And Moses says these rivers were the Gihon, Pishon, Tigris, and Euphrates. We don't know where the Gihon and the Pishon are today, but the Tigris and Euphrates are in Iraq. And so some people go, well, it's, was Eden in Iraq? Well, this is a post-flood world. Who knows what the pre-flood world looked like? We don't know where Eden was. But God plants a garden there, and then he puts man there. He makes aminals for proof he did it. Why would he do that? The pe people will say, well, this is a second creation account because man is made and then the animals are made. No. God makes all this stuff, and then on day six, he goes, here's a garden, I'm going to put man there, and he makes animals because Adam did not see any of this. You know, I, I'm glad God did that. Now, Adam knew for certain, you're the true God, you're the true creator. 
There are some literal Satanists out there who believe God and Satan created the world together. God has gotten all the glory. Satan's got the shaft. Satan is going to attack God one day with the demons and the unbelievers, overthrow God, the angels, and destroy heaven because he's the co-creator. That's a lie, and the father of lies telling you that, John 8, 44. Adam was alive and could see God do this. And now read your Genesis genealogy, chapter 5. And look at all the generations as Adam lived for 930 years that he could tell people, I saw myself. I can tell you what Eden was like. I saw what God did. He could pass that on. And we have something even better. We have God's inspired and errant word, right? That's powerful. Adam means man in Hebrew. Hey, man. Eve means living. Why? She's the mother of all the living, right? Finally, what did Jesus talk about when he was asked about divorce? He goes, well, at the beginning, God made them male and female. He points back to the Genesis text. He should know. He was there. He quotes Genesis 1, Genesis 2. Important stuff, all right? Important stuff. I went overtime at 639, right? Youth, we'll throw it open to you before we send you out to small groups. Youth, any questions? A lot to chew on. Youth, any questions? No questions. All right, I just have some small group announcements for you guys. Uh, Mr. Tillman's group, you guys are going to meet in the commons. Uh, sixth grade girls, you're going to be in the conference room across from the history wall. So just right down this hallway. All sixth grade girls, okay? Um, eighth grade boys, you're going to meet in room 204 upstairs. All right, that way. And then uh, high school girls, you're in the offices as usual. High school boys, you're going to be in the big room upstairs. And that's it. All right. Ciao, youth. We'll see you next time. We'll throw it open to questions from adults if you want to stick around for our Q&A session. Pastor Howard's got his microphone, and he can get the mic to you, and we can look at questions and comments. Brad? Yep. We have one from one of our youth leaders. So oh, great. Okay. We're going to throw it open to her All right, right away great. since she has to go yep. meet some of our youth. So I had asked you last week about that whole, like my two millennial sons, and you said about the Z's that they're falling away and they don't really know. And I asked one of my younger millennial son, and I said, what do you think about this? And he says that everything he sees online, that Christians are all about hate, about homosexuals, hating homosexuals, and hating everybody, and that church down in Florida that hates everybody. And I said, wow. I said, um, but... We're supposed to love everybody. It's not, and that's what he said he is seeing as like advertising for Christians. Right. And what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a great question. So, so his, his complaint is Christians are haters, right? Yes. yes. And so <clears throat> what, um, what we are now living in is a post-Christian culture, and if you do not believe what postmodernism says, postmodernism says there is no truth, Everybody's truth is equal. No truth claim is be better than another. And the cardinal sin in this day and age is to say that's wrong. You cannot judge anything. That, you, you shouldn't do that. And, and a lot of times people will quote Matthew 7. They'll go, well, even the Bible says, Jesus says, don't judge. And they take that out of context, and that's a different issue, all right? But bottom line is, 
So Christians are haters because we say something's wrong, all right? Change it. Change the discussion because homosexuality is good and proper and right in, in, in this day and age. Fine. Let's, let's talk about something else. I can show you pictures of the Taliban where they cut off the nose and the ears of a woman because she didn't follow Sharia law. Is that right or wrong? If we say it's wrong, aren't we hating? Is, aren't we judging their culture? We have no right to judge their culture. So we should let them do that. And we shouldn't step in. Isn't that correct? And so help them understand what you're labeling as hate is what people look at and go, I think that's wrong. I don't hate you. I'm telling you it's wrong. All right? If I'm walking around with my fly down, I would hope you'd love me enough to go, XYZ, PDQ, okay? Let me translate that. Examine your zipper pretty darn quick, okay? <laughs> you're a hater! You're a hater! <laughs> no, you're not a hater. You're just pointing something's wrong, all right? If you and I cannot point out something's wrong, you are losing huge chunks of our freedom. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, all right? And that's why the quickest way to shut down things is you're a hater, all right? You're deciding no one can judge. You could also flip it around and do this. Why are you judging my judgment? You, you, you've just judged my judgment and said I'm a hater, all right? No, wait a minute, all right? You, you don't have any right to do that. What else? Questions, thoughts, comments? Adaptation? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me... Okay, go ahead. Okay, I understand your idea of variation of the species that makes perfect sense yep. but environmental adaptation how does that relate to evolutionism don't they mistake that as evolution yeah sometimes what they'll do is they'll say see adaptation proves evolution and you go wait a minute what do you mean and that's why that's that's a huge thing to do just ask for definitions what do, what do you mean what are you talking about right so that things can adapt fine but is the organism still whatever it is, a moth, all right, uh, is it still a finch? So the, the Galapagos finches, raise your hand if you're familiar with the Galapagos finches. Okay, some of you are, all right. Um, there's a great video and book, it's called Icons of Evolution, and so if you don't want to read the book, you can watch the video, it's great. And they talk about the Galapagos finches, and so these scientists watched the finches on the Galapagos Islands and measured the size of the beaks and they found that when there was droughts and food was not easily accessible, only the finches with the larger beaks would survive because they could get the food that was harder to reach. And so uh, they found that, wow, that's an argument for Darwin's uh, adaptation and natural selection. And, and the argument from other scientists was, that doesn't prove macroevolution. They're still finches, all right? If they become an elephant, that's an argument for, for Darwinian evolution and a macro change, but it's, it's, it's just the, the size of the beak, all right? So adaptation, dealing with environmental changes, sure, okay, yeah. And if it's observable, it's scientific, no problem. But is the organism still, whatever it is, a worm, this or that or the other thing, then that's microevolution. What else? We're, we're, we'll wait for the microphone here. There we go. That same thing is true also of uh, 
insects that develop uh, ways to come to go against uh, when like, we try to destroy them. Yeah, like pesticides and that. Yeah, yeah. They find ways around it, mm -hmm. but they're still that insect. Correct, correct. So, uh, uh, bacteria or uh, insect resistant strains, there's still those strains, whatever they are, a bacteria or an insect or whatever. What else? Well, let's eat then. All right. <laughs> Over here. Brad, I always wanted to ask a question, like, when they talked about fossils and the age of fossils compared to what the, the Bible says in years, you know, how do you explain for the differences in the Yeah, so, age? so, the age? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, one, again, let's go back to our A-bomb thing, all right? So, assumption, beginning, order, morality, right? Assumption, Earth is billions of years old, right? How do we know, all right? Um, uh, are you talking about dating, like radiometric dating and stuff like that? Yeah, all right. So here's the, here's the easiest explanation I've found to help people grasp this. And if you want the technical side of it, I give you information, books and videos and the like. But here's the easiest way to do it. If you and I walk in and there's a candle burning... So we walk into the sanctuary all together here, and we walk in, and there's a candle burning. And somebody goes, oh, man, that's a fire hazard. This candle was burning in the sanctuary, and there's no one in here. How long has that candle been burning like this? Answer, we don't know. We don't know how long it's been burning. So now we can do observational science, and we could sit here for an hour. And let's say it burns down one inch in one hour. Hey, we did observational science. We watched that candle. It burned an inch in an hour. Now, go back to the original question. How long has that candle been burning? We don't know. <laughs> we don't know. Because a couple of things. We don't know the original height of the candle. We don't know the burn rate. We don't know if anything's been taken from this candle. All right? Those are the three assumptions that go with radiometric dating. And it doesn't matter if you talk about carbon, strontium, lead, or whatever. They all start with these assumptions. The initial amount of the substance is known. No, it's not. It's like saying, well, store-bought candles are 12 inches tall, and this candle is only 6 inches tall, so therefore it's been burning 6 hours because we know that the burn rate is 1 inch an hour. We don't know the original height of this candle. But the assumption in radiometric dating is the similar thing. We know the initial amount of the material. No, we don't. That's an assumption. But you've got to start somewhere, right? Next, the decay rate is constant. The decay rate is constant, and so in our analogy, the burn rate's the same. Well, we watched it for an hour. We saw the burn rate. We can watch it another hour, and the burn rate's still an inch, so it's probably an inch an hour. Okay, but we don't know that because we didn't see it lit originally. How do we know the person who lit it didn't use a flamethrower and melted a ton of that off right away? We don't know the burn rate. And so it's the same thing here. What's the decay rate of strontium or lead or whatever? Oh, well, we can observe this. Okay. But is it always the same? Finally, there's no contamination. Nothing's been added. Nothing's been subtracted. So in our analogy, how do we know someone didn't take a store-bought candle 12 inches, 
broke it in half, stuck it here, lit it, walked out. We walked in. It was only burning for 10 seconds. We don't know that. And so if you understand these three simple concepts, do you know the original amount? Is the decay rate constant? Is the, is the, uh, uh, is the product contaminated? Well, the assumption is, yeah, we know. No, it's always the same. No contaminant. <laughs> and here's the killer. When they'll take a, 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 an object, something that they want to radiometrically date, they can date it with three different techniques. Again, strontium, lead, whatever. And they'll get three different readings. So, for example, and that's why you've got to read the technical journals on this, and sometimes the technical journals just make your head spin because we're not geologists. But Answers in Genesis, for example, will break this down and make it real simple, and they'll go, look. They'll take a rock, they'll take a substance, and they'll date it with three different things. And they don't give you all the same ranges of ages. One will say, this is hundreds of thousands of years old. Another one will say, it's millions of years old. Another one will say, it's billions of years old. And that should make us pause right there. If this is such a hard and fast science, why aren't they all giving you the same approximate number? Why aren't they all hundreds of thousands or millions or billions? Why would you have these disparate numbers? The analogy would be this. How wide is this? Someone walks up with a ruler and goes, well, it's uh, 27 inches. And someone walks up with a tape measure and goes, it's 10 feet. And someone walks up with a, with a yardstick and goes, it's a mile. And you go, wait a minute, we should all get approximately the same number. Okay? Okay. What else? Questions, concerns? I have a gentleman I've, that I work with that I've only had, um, well, three 10-minute conversations with him. And he's a um, reincarnation. He believes that, he believes there is a God, and he believes this is hell. This is hell? This is as bad as it's going to get. Okay. And that uh, we have to keep getting better, or, or have, we, he has morals, you know, he's very moral, and... Good. and uh, but we have to be better to get better to become or to, to go and see God and be in heaven. So it's just that, but I haven't had any other conversations with him to get more into his analogy, uh, uh, how he came about with this. Yeah. So he says we're reincarnated, right? And then one day we're going to get to be with God, yeah. but we got to be good enough? Yeah. Yeah. And, and has, he defined, has he defined what good is? Okay. He's just hoping he's going to be good enough. Got it. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and, and that's where what you and I got to do is you got to bring law and gospel, all right? And, and one, law, you got to help them to show their sins, right? So, so one way we can do it is like this. God's not looking for good people. He's looking for perfect people. So are you perfect? And then you can just start asking them questions, right? Did you ever steal anything? Did you ever lie? You, yeah, you ain't going to make it, all right? Now, you get one merry-go-round ride, and that's it. Now, if he's hoping that, well, no, I'll just, I'll just get another shot, okay? We can go to Hebrews 9.27. It's appointed once for a man to die and then face judgment. It's appointed once for a man to die and then face judgment, Hebrews 9.27. We can go to Ecclesiastes 12.7, all right? The body returns to the ground from which it came, and the spirit goes back to God. 
who gave it, all right? You get one shot on the merry-go-round. And that's why God is reaching out to you now. Now you're bringing gospel, all right? You know what? You could never be perfect. I can't be perfect. Nobody can, all right? But help them understand, Jesus was. He was just as we are, Hebrews 2, Hebrews 4, but was without sin. And he's offering you forgiveness full and free right now. And it's by grace you're saved through faith, and it's not by works, so no one can boast, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, all right? So help them see, God's not looking for good. He's looking for perfect. You'll never be perfect. Jesus is perfect, and he's your perfect ticket to salvation, the way, the truth, the life. What else? So sometimes people say, well, like, there's fossils, and there's transition fossils somewhere in a museum, and how do you address their concerns, I suppose? So, so they, they bring up that there's transitional fossils? Yeah. Yeah. And so the, the question again is, are these true transitional fossils, are they artist representations? Because I can draw really well too, all right? And I don't want to see another artist rendering, computer-generated, sculpted, painted, whatever, Let's see the real deal, all right? And so when you have evolutionists themselves who are arguing, saying that's not becoming whatever they, they propose, right? That's always a fascinating discussion to listen to because it's not a creationist going, no, no. It's evolutionists who, again, are looking at the same thing, but they're interpreting it differently, which, again, is, is a fascinating thing to listen to because you've got these people going, that's not becoming an, a, a human. It's a type of orangutan or a chimpanzee, right, the examples I gave before. And that's why I love that Dr. Colin Patterson quote. Here's a textbook on evolution. He runs a museum. He's got seven million fossils. And, and he's asked, why don't you have the transitional fossils from one to another? He goes, there's none that you can make a watertight argument for. That's so telling right there. And there's others who say the same thing. They go, look, you, you can't build this. It's built on straw. This latest article was so powerful. That's why this guy goes from World Magazine, Gunther Beckley, he goes, look, if this is not true, it's game over for naturalism. But there's no alternative. And that's why he goes, they're going to defend this to the hilt. And so ask, where are the transitional fossils? I don't want to see another artist rendering. What's the real deal? There we go. Uh, during the uh, 1920s, it seems, America sort of fell in love with the term social Darwinism, mm -hmm. survival of the fittest. And we had our heroes, Babe Ruth and uh, uh, Amelia Earhart, uh, you know, Lou Gehrig, uh, Lindbergh, etc. And uh, much of what you said tonight uh, was way over my head. But I am walking out of here with the truism, and please correct me if I'm wrong. I'm walking out of here tonight with the truism that our Almighty God has created everything in existence, and whether it is social Darwinism or any other phony you know, uh, idea dealing with evolution, we are to reject it totally. Yeah, yeah. Long story short, what, what am I saying, right? So it was the uh, bottom drawing here. All right, I believe, I, I'm a creationist. I, I believe that God 
literally created things in six days, and then he stopped, and that's why he said in Exodus 20 and, and 31, that's why you guys knock yourself out for six days, then take a break, the Sabbath, all right? And so what did Jesus talk about? Mark 10, at the beginning, God made a male and female, all right? Do I believe in microevolution, small changes within a species? Yes, all right? You can crossbreed dogs, but they're still dogs. So that's scientific, it's observable, so the scientific method is not rejected, all right? But Darwinism and the evolutionary theory that, this, that life came from lifeless matter 14 billion years ago, yeah, I, I reject. And so when people try to mix the two together, it, you're going to end up compromising Scripture because you've got other problems besides the Genesis text. What else? Go. Okay, Brad, this is a, kind of a two-part question. But sure. You mentioned or you touched a little bit on it earlier about angels not being there when God created. So... I guess my question to you is, when were they created? Because we know Satan was shortly involved in, in what happened here, correct? Right. And why did God create the option for us to have the free will? Why were there the two trees and said, don't eat of this one? Yeah, that's okay. a great question. So the first part, so uh, creation of angels, right? So, yeah, yeah. So, so Colossians 1.16, by him, God, by him all things are created, whether visible or invisible, all right, whether thrones, powers, rulers, or principalities, all right? So Colossians 1.16, Paul says, look, by Jesus, him, all things were created, whether in heaven or earth, whether visible or invisible. And then he talks about thrones, powers, uh, 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 principalities, dominions. Those in Greek are, are angelic terms, are types of angels, all right? So again, we look at those terms and we just kind of go, what are you talking about, earthly rulers? No, he's talking about angelic beings. So all you know is, what, what are you saying, Paul? Jesus, you... The Word, who spoke everything into existence, made everything, whether in heaven or earth, whether visible or invisible, also the thrones, powers, rulers, dominions, all right, the angelic beings. So somewhere in the six days of creation, God makes the angels. Nobody knows for sure which day. It must not be that important because he doesn't talk about it. Um, Ezekiel 28 is this great passage where, um, like Isaiah 14, it's a prophecy about a king, but then... Information is, is said about this king that can't be a human because the, the king is called a cherub, which is a type of angel, and the cherub is in Eden and was perfect from the day it was created. So the Bible scholars go, we think Isaiah 14, I can give you the exact text if you want them, Ezekiel 28, are talking to human kings and they're comparing the kings to the devil and saying, you know, you're as nasty as the devil, all right? Because what's described can't fit a human. It, it just doesn't work. So Ezekiel 28, uh, this is verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel speaking, son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Listen to this. You were in Eden, the garden of God, every precious stone adorned you, uh, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle, and created in gold were your settings and on your engravings. On the day you were created, you were, they were prepared. You were anointed a guardian cherub. I placed you on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. Watch this. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I, destroy, I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. 
Listen to this. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. That's a powerful section. Long story short, he keeps saying, on the day you were created, one of those days this cherub was made. He was perfect. He was in Eden in the garden of God. What happened? Because of his beauty, he becomes proud. And God casts him down. When you read Isaiah 14, five times it says, I will, I will, I will, I will. And the last statement is, I will be like the Most High. And he ends up casting that being down, right? And so the belief is, God is speaking through these prophets, telling these kings, you remind me of someone I, I know who used to work for me, the devil, all right? You've got an attitude of pride. You're way out of place, all right? So they're created somewhere in the six days, and all it says is, till wickedness was found in you, on account of your beauty, you became proudful and said, you don't want to listen to God, you want to call your own shots. Nobody tempted the devil. When you read 2 Peter 2, Peter goes, hey, there was a flood, and God saved Noah and the boys. Hey, there was uh, the... Um, uh, there was the, the angels who rebelled, and he doesn't mention a, a, a savior for them, all right? He mentions Sodom and Gomorrah, and he mentions Lot is saved, all right? So he talks about two Old Testament stories, the flood and Sodom and Gomorrah and how God saves, but he mentions the demons who fell, and no savior is mentioned. And what it seems to be is this. No one tempts Satan and these demons. They just go, we don't want to do what you want. We want to do what we want. So they're given free will, we're given free will. What's the difference? Satan tempts Adam and Eve, lies to him. You're not going to die. You're going to be like God. Come on, eat it. And they buy into that lie. And God cuts us a second chance. What did these demons do with the devil? They just out and out rebel. And so when you read 2 Peter and Jude, it talks about they abandon their positions of authority. They just quit on God. I don't want to do this. I want to do my own thing. God goes, Go. Nobody's holding you here. Oof. God gave us, gave them, let's do it like this, the dignity of free will. God could have made robots. Here's robot angels. Here's robot humans. You will all love me, but there's no relationship. And so we could do it a couple of ways. How are you going to do this, God? Well, uh, I'm going to make robots, and they'll always serve me. Eh, no. I'm going to make them. I'm going to give them free will, and the minute they sin, I'm going to destroy them. Well, we'd never be here then because Adam and Eve would have been toast, right? I'm going to give them free will. They're going to rebel against me. The demons I will not forgive, but I'll forgive those humans because they were lied to. And I'll be like them. I'll walk among them, and I'll bring them back in love. I'm going to give them a second chance. What else? Yeah, so Genesis 6-4 talks about the Nephilim and the, the flood concept in Genesis 6-9 through is incredible. And before that, it says, uh, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. They were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So long story short, Nephilim, Genesis 6-4, are mighty men, men of renown, all right? 
Read Numbers 13, okay? Twelve little spies that went to Cain, and ten were bad, and two were good. What did they see when they went to Cain, and ten were bad, and two were good? Some saw giants big and tall. Some saw grapes and clusters fall. Some saw God was in it all. Twelve little spies that went to Cain, and ten were bad, and two were good. Do you remember this story, Numbers 13? Joshua and Caleb and the ten spies, twelve total, one from each of the twelve tribes, goes and checks out the land for 40 days and comes back. They report, land of Canaan's good, it's flowing with milk and honey, but doggone it. There's some tall people there. Descendants of the Nephilim are there. We felt like grasshoppers in these cities, all right? They mentioned Hebron, where these, these guys were, all right? So then the rest of the spies start to panic, and they spread exaggerations going, the land devours the people there, and everyone's of enormous size, all right? So again, it's just, ah! So they go, oh, we can't do this. And then God says, wait a minute, all right? You don't think I can do this? Well, we should go back to Egypt. Fine. God goes, here's what we're going to do. We're going to wander around now for 40 years. One day for every day you, you explored the land, and no one's going in because you didn't believe me, except for Joshua and Caleb, the two guys who believed. They thought that, or they knew that there were some tall guys there. Nephilim seemed to be giants. King James translates that giants, right? They're men of old, heroes, heroes of old, men of renown. So you connect the dots. Genesis 6, Numbers 13. Read Joshua 11. Forty years later, Caleb goes into the land. <laughs> He's awesome. He goes, I'm 85 years old. I'm just as strong and vigorous as I ever was. Right? Now give me that land God promised. He says, the Nephilim are there. But God's help, I'm going to drive them out. And sure enough, he does. And Hebron, Nephilim stronghold, belongs to Caleb and his boys. Right? It says, the Nephilim and their descendants, Anak, all right, descendants of, of Anak come from the Nephilim. It said, they went to coastal cities, Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. So now connect the dots. Numbers, uh, Genesis 6, Numbers 13, Joshua 11. Now go to 1 Samuel 17. There comes a champion from Gath, and he's nine feet tall. He's a Nephilim. He's a giant. He's a hero of old. And David takes him down. And so it's amazing. The Nephilim, the giants, the men of old, heroes of renown that you read about before the flood are in Numbers 13. They're driven out in Joshua 11 to three coastal Philistine cities, Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. And the champion from Gath later is, is Goliath. And so when people go, you really believe your Bible? I go, yeah, I do. You really think there's been giants on the earth? Well, how tall are you talking about? It says he's nine feet tall. You really believe that? Yeah. Then show him the Guinness Book of World Records. World's tallest man, Robert Wadlow from Alton, Illinois. Eight feet, 11 and a quarter inches tall. Nine feet. How did they get their post-flood? That's the right question to ask. There were Nephilim on the earth before the flood and after the earth, after the flood, right? So there's eight people who survived the flood. Somebody's a giant. One or more, right? So somebody, Noah, his wife, Shem, Ham, Japheth, and their wives, somebody is carrying that gen genetic capability to have a big, or they were just tall themselves, right? They were a hero of old. That's pretty cool. Pretty cool. What else? Oh, there it is. 
All right. Yep, we're going to pray, and then next week we're coming back. We're taking a look at the issue of suffering and evil, all right? And there's food out there. All right, let's pray. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that we are not a random collection of molecules, but we are a unique creation that you've made and that you love us so dearly. Thank you for not giving up on us, but instead giving up your son that we could have a relationship with you. Lord, I pray that you'd open doors for us just to ask people questions and to get them to start thinking about you because you are thinking about them. We love you, Lord, because you've loved us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.